Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Friday, February 16th, 2024. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, Egypt builds camps for Palestinians on the Gaza border. So Egypt is building an eight-square-mile walled enclosure in the Sinai Desert near Gaza to prepare for an influx of Palestinian refugees as Israel is vowing to launch an assault on Rafah, the southern Gaza city that borders Egypt and is packed with about 1.5 million Palestinians. So the revelation of Egypt's construction, which was reported by the Wall Street Journal and an Egyptian rights group, signals that Cairo is caving to Israeli pressure to allow Palestinians to enter its territory. Egyptian officials told the Wall Street Journal that more than 100,000 people would be able to fit into the camp that they are constructing. If a mass exodus of Palestinians from Gaza does happen, the Egyptian official says that, said that they want to limit the number of refugees they allow in to be between 50 thousand and sixty thousand i think if they start coming across the border it would probably be pretty difficult for egypt to to limit the number i mean depending on how how big the israeli assault on rafa is so the sinai foundation for human rights first reported on the construction on wednesday and said that the project is expected to be completed within 10 days Egyptian officials told the journal that they expect a broad Israeli offensive on Rafah to start within weeks. Israel must be, you know, Israel definitely knows that Egypt is building this uh, camp. And I'm sure that with that knowledge, that means they're going to try to push as many Palestinians as they can into that camp, into Egypt. That's really their ultimate goal here, Israeli government officials, ministers in the Netanyahu government have not been shy about their desire to expel the Palestinians from Gaza and reestablish Jewish settlements in the Strip. Um, I always go back to that document that was leaked back in October when this thing first started that was drawn up by the Israeli military, sorry, the Israeli intelligence ministry And it laid out potential scenarios for a post-war Gaza. And the best scenario, based on their assessment, was all of the Palestinians in Gaza, all 2.3 million of them being kicked out into Egypt and Israel creating a buffer zone in Egyptian territory so they couldn't get close to Gaza. Um, And we've seen Netanyahu has said that he is looking for countries to absorb Palestinians. Um, but since then, he's kind of cooled the rhetoric on that uh, since the, the Biden administration has criticized Ben Gavir and Smotrich, these Israeli ministers who speak very openly about this stuff. Um, but still, it's very much uh, what these Israeli officials want is to kick these Palestinians out. Ethnic cleansing is certainly on the agenda. And Egypt building these camps is a sign that, you know, they might be wearing down the Egyptians to get them to let the Palestinians in. All right, so the next one here, Israel scoffs at a reported U.S. post-war Gaza peace plan. So Israeli officials on Thursday scoffed at a long-term peace plan the U.S. is reportedly working on that includes a path toward a Palestinian state. 
And this was reported by the Washington Post. It said that the U.S. and several Arab nations are rushing to complete the proposal, which includes a firm timeline for the establishment of a Palestinian state. But Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been very clear that he is opposed to a Palestinian state at any time in the future, and Israeli officials immediately rejected the reported plan. And this potential plan includes conditions that Netanyahu will refuse, such as the withdrawal of many settlers from the occupied West Bank. That's not going to happen, especially with this government, um, you know, and there's many, it's not just Netanyahu, there's many people in his government that are settlers themselves. And when they first came into power at the end of 2022, the government put out a statement saying that they will prioritize expanding settlements in the West Bank and with the ultimate goal of annexing the territory. So they're not going to give it up. So in response to the report, a spokesman for Netanyahu said that now was not the time to talk about the day after. So this is Avi Hyman, Netanyahu spokesman. He said, quote, here in Israel, we are still in the aftermath of the October 7th massacre. Now is not the time to be speaking about gifts to the Palestinian people, end quote. Israeli Minister of National Security Itamar ben Gavir, who recently called for Israeli forces to shoot Palestinian women and children, also rejected the potential U.S. plan as delusional. ben Gavir said, quote, After October 7th, it is clearer than ever that it is forbidden to give them a state. While we are in the government, no Palestinian state will be established, end quote. According to this Washington Post report, the U.S. is looking to release the outline for the peace plan during a pause in the Israeli slaughter in Gaza that could happen as part of a new hostage deal. But Netanyahu uh, has ended the hostage talks, at least for now, so there's no sign that a deal is going to be reached uh, anytime soon. Um, So the U.S. is saying that there's still a chance. I'm sure there's still some sort of talks going on, but... Uh, it seems like Netanyahu wants to just keep going, you know, full steam ahead. All right. So the next one here, Israel killed 75% of journalists in war zones last year. So this article is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute, and it says a global watchdog group for the treatment of journalists found that Israeli forces were responsible for about three quarters of all journalists killed in war zones during 2023. The Committee to Protect Journalists found that 72 Palestinian reporters were killed last year. So think about that. 75%, or they said 72% of the journalists killed in war zones in 2023. In three months of the year, 75 sorry, 72% of the journalists were killed. I mean, that's a crazy statistic. And it just goes to show how many uh, journalists are being killed. And the Gaza, there's Gaza, the Gaza media office the, uh, is saying that the, the death toll of journalists is actually higher. They're saying that at least 126 Palestinian media workers have been killed. Uh, while the Committee to Protect Journalists put the number um, at 72 for last year. So the 126 includes some that were killed this year, but I believe their number overall is higher than the Committee to Protect Journalists. All right, so the next one here, Israeli forces storm besieged Gaza hospitals. So this article is from Middle East Eye. This happened early Thursday 
morning, uh, Israeli forces began raiding the Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus, southern Gaza's main medical facility, after shelling it and reportedly killing at least one patient. The attack comes a day after the Israeli army said that it tried to evacuate civilians from the hospital, but medics said patients were unable to safely flee and many displaced Palestinians remained at the hospital. Footage from overnight shows patients being taken out of their rooms in hospital gurneys, some screaming in pain through the sound of distant gunshots. Israel has laid siege to the hospital for a few days, claiming it was housing Hamas fighters. Similar claims were made about previously attacked hospitals without any evidence of a significant military presence provided. Medical staff at the hospital previously told Middle East Eye that at least three Palestinians were killed at the hospital's northern gate as Israeli as Israel forced them to leave the hospitals at gunpoint. Dr. Khalid Alser, a surgeon at the hospital, told Middle East Eye that Israeli tanks have entered the hospital grounds while the remaining people in the hospital, including 14 medical staff tending to 120 patients, were ordered to gather in one building. So the attacks on hospitals continue. The raids, you know, on hospitals continue. All right, so the next one here. U.S. cyber attack on an alleged Iranian spy ship. So the U.S. recently conducted a cyber attack against an alleged Iranian spy ship that has been operating near Djibouti. This was reported by NBC News on Thursday. So one U.S. official identified the ship as the motor vessel Bashad, which is registered as a cargo ship in Iran. The U.S. claims that the ship is used to provide intelligence to the Houthis, while Iran's ambassador to the UN insisted last week that the vessel is in the Red Sea to combat piracy activities and is not involved in Houthi operations. The nature of the cyber attack on the Bashad is unclear. The U.S. official said that it was intended to disrupt the vessel's alleged intelligence operations. So the cyber attack occurred about a week ago and was part of the U.S. response to the drone attack that killed three members of the U.S. Army Reserve and wounded about 40 Arizona National Guardsmen at a secretive U.S. base in Jordan near the Syrian border. So that attack on Tower 22 that killed three U.S. troops also wounded 40 members of the National Guard. And, you know, this is a secretive U.S. drone base that's used to support airstrikes in Syria and Iraq. Why isn't it just crazy that it's the National Guard that gets deployed there? That's why I've been pushing the for people to get involved in the defend the guard stuff because um, I think it it has a lot of power. If they if they pass the legislation in a state, that means the federal government cannot deploy that state's National Guard to war zones where uh, if Congress hasn't officially declared war, and they haven't done that since World War II. Um, and that's who is deployed to Syria, Iraq, and and this secretive base in Jordan. Um, so I think it's really important. I've been putting, if you look in the description, either on the YouTube channel or if you listen to the podcast, you can find it in the description as well, the link to the phone bank for Defend the Guard. And just go to their website and check it out. See what the status is um, in your state with the legislation. They're working in, I believe, 30 states at this point. All right, uh, to get back to the story here. So the Pentagon admitted that it had no evidence Iran was involved in the Jordan attack, but it blamed Iran anyway because it arms the Shia militias the U.S. believes were responsible. So again, they're saying this was part of the response to the Jordan attack. And 
the U.S. on February 2nd, the U.S. launched those heavy airstrikes in Iraq and Syria that they said was retaliation, which killed around 40 people. Mostly, they killed mostly members of the militias, but the uh, Air Wars, which is kind of a monitoring group that investigates civilian casualties, they looked into the civilian deaths in Iraq and they said that up to three civilians may have been killed. Um, so the uh, before the U.S. launched those airstrikes, U.S. officials told media outlets that Part of the plan was to conduct cyber attacks against Iran as part of the response to the Jordan attack. So here we, it looks like they did it to this ship. And the U.S. has a history of conducting cyber attacks against Iran, the most infamous being the Stuxnet virus that was designed by U.S. and Israeli intelligence and targeted Iran's civilian nuclear program back in 2010. But I know during the Trump administration, there's reports of cyber attacks against Iran and, uh, you know, it's something that a tactic that the U.S. I think commonly uses against the Iranians. Um, all right, so the next one here: Hezbollah fires rockets at northern Israel after deadliest day of strike. So this article is from Jason Ditz, and it says mourners were out in numbers in southern Lebanon Thursday following the single deadliest day of Israeli airstrikes against the border region in some four months of escalating violence. So Wednesday's attack appeared to be the start of a new campaign as additional Israeli attacks were reported in the south on Thursday, leading to criticism from Lebanon's prime minister. Israeli Army Chief Herzi Halevi suggested that the escalation was only the beginning, declaring that Israeli forces were intensifying strikes all the time. Israel reported dozens of Hezbollah targets were hit on Thursday, though confirmation of any casualties is not yet available. Similarly, return rockets fired by Hezbollah hit northern Israel without any casualties being reported. Um, So the death toll for the Israeli strikes in Lebanon on Wednesday is now up to 10. They're saying uh, 10 civilians were killed in a single attack on a multi-story building. And the... um, Sorry, what am I... uh, Okay, so Hezbollah is also promising retaliation, warning that this, you know, they're going to step up Uh, attacks on Israel in response to those heavy Israeli airstrikes. All right, so the next one here, the House passes a bill prohibiting normalizing with Syria. So on Wednesday, the House passed a bill that prohibits the U.S. from opening diplomatic relations with the Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad and expands harsh sanctions on Syria to prevent other countries from normalizing with Syria. So the Assad Regime Anti-Normalization Act passed in a vote of 389 to 32, demonstrating broad bipartisan support for the economic war against Syria. Only 28 Democrats and four Republicans voted against the bill. The legislation now heads to the Senate, where I am guessing it will pass. The bill was introduced as a reaction to Arab countries repairing relations with the Assad government and Syria being brought back into the Arab League. Hawks in the U.S. are opposed to Syria's regional integration and are hoping they can prevent it using sanctions under the Caesar Act. So the Caesar Act was implemented in 2020 and allows the U.S. to sanction any individual or entity that does business with the Syrian government. The sanctions are specifically designed to prevent Syria from rebuilding, and Secretary of State Antony Blinken has previously said that it's U.S. policy to oppose the reconstruction of Syria as long as Assad remains in power, and he's not going anywhere. 
Uh, The text of the bill declares that it is U.S. policy, quote, to actively oppose recognition or normalization of relations by other governments with any government of Syria that is led by Bashar al-Assad, including by fully implementing the mandatory primary and secondary sanctions in the Caesar Civilian Protection Act, end quote. So that's what they call it, the Civilian Protection Act, even though these sanctions are having a devastating impact on the civilians living in uh, Syria, in the government-controlled territories. On top of the economic sanctions on Syria, the U.S. also has about 900 troops occupying the eastern portion of the country, where it backs the Kurdish-led SDF and controls oil fields. Recent reports have suggested the U.S. was considering a withdrawal from Syria, as its forces have been under attack since October due to U.S. support for the Israeli slaughter in Gaza. So there were some inklings that the U.S. might be thinking about pulling out, but an SDF commander, which again is the Kurdish group that the U.S. backs, said last week that he received assurances from the U.S. that a withdrawal was not on the table. So the U.S. is telling the Kurds, don't worry, we're not going anywhere. But that doesn't mean that they're not thinking about it. You know, the U.S. has a history of, uh, you know, not being nice to the Kurds, but... I haven't really seen any other signs since those initial reports of the U.S. kind of thinking about withdrawing. I think they are probably determined to stay. All right, so the next one here, House Intel chief disclosed a national security threat. So I'm sure many of you heard about this story. So this was on Wednesday that Representative Mike Turner, he's a Republican from Ohio, and the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, he made a vague public warning on Wednesday about an unspecified serious national security threat, prompting accusations that he did so to pressure the House to pass the $95 billion foreign military aid bill that just made it through the Senate. So, I mean, that's where my mind immediately went. He came out and said, again, no specifics, just saying there's a serious national security threat. The Biden administration needs to declassify it so Congress can discuss it. And then it came out from media reports that, oh, it's related to Russia. And it's, oh, it's related to Russia's space program. And they're they're trying to make space nukes. Um, So the uh, that's what U.S. officials later told media outlets that. So he came out with this vague thing. And then that's what they told him. For their part, Russia has dismissed the claim, saying that the U.S. was making up malicious stories. What these U.S. officials were saying is that Russia is looking to develop nuclear weapons in space that could hit satellites. Um, So Turner has come under fire from some members of Congress for making the public spectacle. Representative Andy Ogles, he is a Republican from Tennessee, wrote a letter to House Speaker Mike Johnson calling for an inquiry into Turner's decision to release the information. Ogle said that Turner likely did so to bolster support for passing the new aid for Ukraine and also extending Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which allows mass warrantless surveillance of Americans. So Section 702 of FISA, very controversial uh, thing that gives the, the U.S. government power to surveil any foreign person and any American person who's talking to them. Um, and just think about it. I mean, I talk to people outside of the country every day, uh, so the they have the authority to to monitor those communications. And Section 702 was due to expire, but it was extended by the 2024 National Defense Authorization Act until April 19th. And now there's a, a vote 
might be coming up on it soon. And Ogles is saying that Turner wants to uh, push that through and that that's part of this. So he said in the letter, quote, it has become clear that the intent was not to ensure the safety of the homeland and the American people, but rather to ensure additional funding for Ukraine and the passage of an unreformed Foreign Intelligence Service Surveillance Act, end quote. So right before Turner made these comments about this big national security threat, he was urging Speaker Johnson to bring the $95 billion military aid package to the floor. He also recently led a congressional delegation to Kiev and has been calling for continued U.S. support for the proxy war. So, you know, I think Ogles is probably right when he says this is what Turner was up to here by putting this out there. All right, so the next one here, U.S. launches airstrike in Somalia. So U.S. is still bombing Somalia. So the U.S. military announced on Wednesday that it launched an airstrike in Somalia against al-Shabaab on February 9th in support of the U.S.-backed Mogadishu-based government. U.S. Africa Command said that the strike was launched in the vicinity of Yak Dabal in Jubala, which is Somalia's southernmost province. The attack marks the first known U.S. airstrike in Somalia for the month of February, AFRICOM announced two airstrikes in Somalia in January. So the command claimed that the, that the airstrike killed two al-Shabaab fighters and that the initial assessment found no civilians were harmed. But I, you always have to point out when it comes to AFRICOM, when it comes to operations in Somalia, very secretive. You know, there's basically no, uh, we barely get any information about this besides these press releases from AFRICOM. Um, and we certainly can't take their word for it. They are notorious for undercounting civilian casualties, so always keep that in mind. Uh, the U.S. has been increasing support for the Somali government in recent years, and on Thursday, the U.S. signed a deal with Somalia to build five new military bases in the country for the Somali army, and the bases will be for the Danab Brigade, a special unit that's armed and trained by the U.S. So I always refer to this government as the Mogadishu-based government because they do not control all of the territory inside Somalia's borders. Somaliland up in the north is basically an auto- you know, an autonomous area that's not controlled by them. And then you have territory controlled by al-Shabaab, and then there's also tribes that control some other territory. I don't know the exact what what the exact extent of how much territory they control, but I just think it's worth pointing out that they don't control the whole country uh, by any means. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, just continuing, you know, and it gets such little attention. Uh, the U.S. has been bombing Somalia for so long. And I link to a really good uh, article by Scott Horton. It's a chapter from his book, Enough Already, about Somalia, about the backstory. And really the big piece of information that I always include is just Al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab is an Al-Qaeda affiliate, so they're the one, you know, the U.S. military always acts like they're this huge threat to the U.S. homeland. Uh, But the fact is they are, you know, not considered to be a threat outside of Somalia. And they, they were born out of an Ethiopian invasion of Somalia in 2006 that was backed by the U.S. So they were fighting against, you know, Ethiopia and the U.S. and U.S. proxies for years before they actually, you know, declared their allegiance to al-Qaeda in 2012. Um, So it's widely believed that they don't have ambitions outside of Somalia. 
All right, so the next one here, Biden White House says that FISA is good and warrants are bad. So this article is from the Cato Institute from Patrick Eddington. And so the FISA thing, Section 702 of FISA, again, due to expire in April, and the House, some members of the House, are they're talking about putting up a bill that would require warrants for this type of surveillance under FISA. And Jake Sullivan was asked about how the what the administration how the administration stands on the extension of FISA, and basically he said that uh, he could not say exactly because they haven't really put out an official statement on it. Um, but he said, you know, discussing the warrant requirement to access FISA data on Americans. He said that that would not be in the national interest of the United States. When asked about warrants for surveillance of Americans, he said that's not in the national interest of the United States. And that's the National Security Advisor saying that. So it's very clear that the White House, if they do try to pass any sort of reform to FISA uh, Section 702, they would probably veto it. And that's what Eddington uh, says in this article about it. Um, and I just thought it was an important story that I I didn't see get much attention. And that's, that's a point he makes here. Um, so that, that's how the administration, uh, stands on this. All right. So that's it for today. I left up, uh, the amnesty story about them calling for the charges against Julian Assange to be dropped because that is next Tuesday and Wednesday, I believe, February 20th and the 21st, are his hearings, possibly his final appeals. I plan on writing something about it Sunday uh, after the weekend to get more attention on it. Um, Really, it's really important. Um, I know there's been so much going on, but it's something we could just bug our representatives about, uh, put some sort of pressure on. Um, So, yeah. And you could go check out our viewpoints. One from Ramsey Baroud, the unrepentant West, the right to commit genocide in Gaza. One from William J. Astore, bombing Muslims for peace. One from Kim Robinson, a principled libertarian stance amid Israel's mass slaughter in Gaza. Uh, he comes to the defense of me and Scott Horton. So we, you know, we get, we're always smeared and, you know, attacked by people from time to time. And, uh, a lot, you know, lately it, it seems like it's been some libertarians uh, for our stance on the Israel-Gaza war. Um, I shouldn't call it the Israel-Gaza war, the slaughter that's happening in Gaza. So go check that out. Uh, one from John Kuriaku, an ex-CIA agent looks back at 22 years of torture at Guantanamo. And one from Senator Rand Paul, seizing Russian assets, feel-good bill that will absolutely boomerang. So um, that's good to see Rand Paul, uh, that's him writing in Responsible Statecraft, saying that this idea of you know stealing the Russian central bank funds to give to Ukraine is going to come back to bite the U.S. Uh, so go check all that out. Um, I hope everyone has a good weekend. One thing, follow us on Instagram. Uh, at antiwarcom is the handle. Follow us on Twitter or X at antiwarcom as well. You can follow me at the Camp Dave. Like and subscribe on YouTube, Odyssey Rumble, wherever you watch. If you listen to the podcast, you could leave a rating or a review depending on where uh, you listen. But all that stuff really helps out. Um, so I'll be back after the weekend. I hope everybody has a good one. Thanks for listening.